0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybatemidrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: I'm really here tonight um, because of events that transpired um, more than 20 years ago. Um, at the same time, um, they even began earlier than that. I like to think that each of us is put on earth for a purpose. Uh, some call what happens to us uh, karma, fate, destiny. In Yiddish, we have a phrase, beshert. As Jews, we believe that on, Yom, uh, on Rosh Hashanah, God opens up this big book, and then he starts to write the names of those who are going to uh, do well in the coming year, those who are going to be healthy, happy, wise, financially successful, as well as those who are going to die. On Yom Kippur, that book is closed, it's sealed. But to me, there's something missing in that equation. We like to say in everyday talk that something is signed, sealed, and delivered. I believe the same thing happens to life. We're the delivery. Uh, we may be inscribed for a good year, but that means that we have to work at having a, having a good year. Uh, I believe it was... Um, The Greeks, who took the word history from the Jewish word or the Hebrew word hester, which means hidden. And by looking back, they they believed they could project forward. So I believe it was Elisa's destiny one morning to to miss one bus uh, in Ashkelon and catch another one that uh, would take her into um, the Gaza Strip that was then attacked on Sunday, April 9th, 1995. But I have to be honest with you and tell you that Elisa did not get on that bus in April of 1995. She got on it when she was four years old in 1979. I was a young lawyer at the time, and I was working in New York City. My wife called up in the afternoon. She said, what time are you coming home? Your daughter is driving me crazy. Now we had two girls at the time, Elisa who was four and Gail who was two. But I could tell from the emphasis that she meant Elisa. And I said, what's going on? What do I have to be prepared for? And she said, don't worry, you'll come home, you'll find out. I got home from work, we had dinner, we sat in the den, And I said, Elisa, what's going on? Why are you driving mommy crazy? And she looked at me and her mother with big brown eyes, and she said, Daddy, where am I going to kindergarten next month? Now, she was a bright girl. She knew I had taken a day off in June, and I brought her around the corner to the public school. She stood on one side of the counter in the office and gave the lady on the other her name and her date of birth and her address and her mother's name, her father's name, her phone number. So I said, Elisa, you're going to the Pleasantdale School. Well, she looked at me and she looked at her mother, she looked at me and she looked at her mother again, she said, no, I'm not. I'm going to a Jewish school with my friend Becky and mommy has to call Becky's mommy tonight to find out about it because I am not going to the Pleasantdale school and she walked out of the room. Now, yes, we were young parents at the time and you knew you didn't take marching orders from a four-year-old. So my wife Roz waited until the next day before she called Becky's mommy. (laughs) And two days after that, I'm taking a tour of a modern Orthodox yeshiva in West Caldwell called the uh, Hebrew Youth Academy of Essex County. Uh, now it's the Joseph Kushner Hebrew Academy that has about 800 students in it, located in Livingston. As we're going through the hallways, the rabbi is extolling the virtues of a day school education. He's telling me the kids will learn about the holidays, they'll learn about Shabbat, they'll learn about this, they'll learn about that. And I'm thinking as we're going through the hallway that um, I have an interesting problem facing me here. For, you know, on Saturday morning I like to bond with my daughters. We didn't call it bonding in 1979. There was no such term known to psychology or psychiatry or medical scientists. It was called going to the hardware store. And in the afternoon we would bond again, this time at the mall. So we went back to Rabbi Green's office and he said, do you have any questions? And I said, the first question was, what's this gonna cost me? And he told me about $1,800 to $2,000 for the year. Now, when I tell that amount to someone who's educating their children now in the yeshiva system and they, they bang themselves on the side of the head, I'm paying $18,000 a year for one kid. I have to remind them that in 1979, I was making $25,000 a year. So then as now Jewish education is still the best form of birth control that we have for our young adults. Second question I asked him was, Rabbi Green, if I send my daughter to this yeshiva, will my lifestyle change? Well, while he leaned back in this big chair that he had, and he leaned forward, he looked me right in the eyes, and he said, no. He lied, but not completely. He said, I actually asked him the wrong question. A yeshiva is nothing more than a building. I didn't ask him if the education that Elisa would bring home to us might get us to change our lifestyle. In that case, he would have said most probably yes. Much to my pleasant surprise, the state of Israel is a regular part of the curriculum of a modern Orthodox yeshiva. When you go to a building today, you go to a yeshiva building today, there are pictures of Israel on the classroom walls, pictures of soldiers, pictures of the Galilee, pictures of the, of the Dead Sea, pictures of the Mediterranean, Jerusalem, of course, Beersheba, you name it, they have a picture of it. And when the Israeli holidays come around, they're celebrated as if they are in um, Israel. Elisa had her first trip to Israel when she was 11 years old. Uh, my sister was going for two weeks, and she asked if Elisa could come along, and I checked with the school, and they said, absolutely, send her. When I picked her up two weeks later, she came back with the first of her Israeli tans. That's where the, the back of your neck gets brown from being in the sun so much, and the top of your hand, the inside of your wrist gets brown from, from sunbathing, Of course, you're immersed in the sun. And when I picked her up at Kennedy Airport, her first words to me were, not look at this great t-shirt I got you This says Coca-Cola in Hebrew, they were... When can I go again? She went four years later when she was 15. That was on a summer trip with the National Council of Young Israel in Manhattan. And that was a six week trip of schlepping and hiking and climbing and swimming and praying and learning. And when she came back, I think she slept for two days. But the trip that would I think make her who she became for all time was her third trip, the one she took in her senior year of high school at the Frisch School in Paramus. It was called March of the Living. Now when I tell the story about the March of the Living, there are many parents who have not heard of it, and I explain to them this way. March of the Living is a two-week trip. First week is spent in Poland, and these young kids are on a bus and the counselor is showing them writing along building roof lines that they can read. And a building that might have been 60 or 70 years ago, a hospital, a Jewish hospital, or an orphanage, or a yeshiva, is now an office building or a police barracks. And because they're in Poland, they take them to the camps. They take them to Madonic. They take them to Treblinka. And on Yom HaShoah Holocaust Remembrance Day, they take them to Auschwitz. And you have about 2,000 boys and girls who are wearing these blue slickers with a Jewish star on the back that says, March of the Living around it. Many of them are carrying Israeli flags. And they start at the gate that mocked everybody who went through that says, work shall make you free. And they're told to turn around and march down the road about two kilometers into the gates of the killing camp, the extermination camp that was Birkenau. Now, Auschwitz had this aura that you were going to work and you were going to be free, whatever that really meant. Birkenau, there were no suggestions of the sort. You went into Birkenau, you went in there to die. Now, since she's been in Poland already for a week, she knows human ash when she sees it in an oven. She's given a little yurt candle and she's told to light it and say Kaddish. So she and her friends light their candles, they put them in the oven, they say Kaddish, and after the last domain, unlike a million and a half Jews who came through those same gates at Birkenau, she's allowed to leave the camp. Eventually the bus takes them to the airport, they fly to Israel. And as soon as the plane lands at Ben-Gurion Airport, she knows she's in a different world. Poland was damp and gray and cloudy and the people walk around schlepping their feet. And maybe that's God's way of reminding them for their role in the Holocaust. And in Israel, she gets off the plane and the sun is shining. The sky is blue. There's not a cloud in the sky. And she begins the second week of her trip. One morning, she's on a bus in Jerusalem. And the bus pulls to the curb. And the counselors say, everybody stand off the bus. Stand on the sidewalk. And don't go anywhere. And she notices that a, that a taxi cab has just stopped. And the driver has opened the door and is standing at the, on the door in the middle of the street. And then the passenger gets out and does the same thing. And people are coming out of the shops. Suddenly, a siren starts to wail. If you were to look at your watch, you would see it's 11 AM, because that morning is Yom Karon. And the country comes to a complete halt for two minutes in memory of those who have fallen since 1947 and victims of terror. When the siren ends, she gets back on the bus. And the bus takes it to Har Herzl. And they take it to the military cemetery. And she sees parents, her parents' age, maybe a little older, maybe a little younger. And she looks at tombstones and she can read them. And she sees the names of boys and girls who are 18, 19, 20 years old, who died defending the state of Israel. In fact, defending us here in the United States. That afternoon is spent in contemplation, study about the history of Israel, the people of Israel. But in our tradition, at sunset a new day begins. And suddenly there's fireworks over the old city of Jerusalem, and kids are dancing with each other in the streets, and they're spraying the silly string confetti that comes out of cans, because that night is Yom Ha'atzmaut, Israel's Independence Day. And when she comes out of the hotel the next morning, every car has a flag flying from it, every balcony has a flag hanging, and people are wrapped up in flags. That afternoon is spent picnicking and playing soccer with strangers and having a good time. So in a 48-hour period of time, you're teenage daughter has had her insights taken out and put back in together again. When she returns home, she doesn't come back a teenager any longer. She comes back a proud young Jewish woman because she has seen the most despicable and disgusting things that a supposedly cultured people can do to another and the good that a people can do for themselves when they're given a little piece of land, the tools, and the opportunity to support to build a home. It's not that Lisa talked about the March of the Living. She really didn't. Uh, We found her her scrapbook after she died. And in it, she has memories. It was how she acted. In those days, we had uh, set up a school. uh, We'll call it the Russian Day School uh, for Soviet emigre children who were coming by the plane load from Russia. And the community wanted to get them acclimated to the American way of education. So Lisa, who was still at the First School at that time, comes home one day and says, you know, Dad, I was thinking, I want to volunteer at the Russian school. I said, what are you going to teach them, English? She says, no, no, no. They're in America. They have to learn how to play baseball. So that's what she did. That fall, when she went away to Brandeis University, she tells us, guess what? I'm now the Shabbos meal coordinator. I said, what does a Shabbos meal coordinator do? She says, well, you know, we have the Kosher Dining Hall in Sherman. And um, there's 250 people Friday night and about 200 for Shabbos lunch. And I'm the one who's in charge of making sure we have enough food and everything is set and all the places are taken care of. And I'm thinking to myself, the girl that we had to threaten or bribe to set our table for seven is now going to be the Shabbos meal coordinator at the university. She's tutoring kids up in Brookline. Five dollars an hour or whatever it was. The girl that I had to ask to help her sisters or brother with their homework, which she wouldn't do because they had to learn on their own the way she did, is now getting paid for tutoring. She's visiting nursing homes in the Brookline area, the Waltham area. A grandmother she treated with respect, but she really wasn't there holding her hand and singing her songs or anything like that. So we knew that Elisa had changed. Unlike her sisters uh, and many of her friends who did what they call a gap year program, that is you go to Israel for a year after high school, uh, Elisa didn't want to do that type of program because she found it very regimented. Um, You have to be here at nine o'clock, here at 10.30, here at two o'clock, night Seder, day Seder. She wanted something that she could do on her own. So much to her credit, she crammed three years at Brandeis University into two and a half, and they gave her a leave of absence in January 1995. And she found a small girl's school in Jerusalem called Nishmat, where she could do independent study. And she went. She was doing terrific. Um, I was recently with the dean of the school, and I showed her some of Elise's uh, classwork that she had done. And and Robinette Henkin couldn't believe her eyes that these kids were doing this back in uh, 1995. Uh, She had sent me an email uh, saying, Dad, um, is there money in my account? Uh, I want to go to Petra with some friends before Pesach. I love America. Now, she was saying, is there money in my account? Translate that, Dad, please put money into my account. And the I love America was the stock I had always given her, that, you know, when she asked us something, I said, you do love America. So I put some money in her account, and I didn't think about it again until Saturday night, April 8th. Elisa called the house and told us that she was on her way for vacation. She spoke first to her mother. And then to me, and I said, well, what are you going to do in Petra? She said, oh, no, we changed our plans. We can't go to Petra because uh, while I had the money my, other, my friends didn't have, so we took a less, we're taking a less expensive um, vacation. I said, where are you going? She said, we're going to Gush Katif. Now, I had never heard of Gush Katif before, so I asked her, where is it? And knowing how much she loved the ocean, I figured she was going to tell me it was near Tel Aviv, near Netanya, near Naharia, near Roshanikra. And she said, Gaza. Now, these were the heady days of the Oslo Accords. Everyone was still in a euphoric, you know, euphoric feeling that everything was going to be okay between Israelis and Palestinians. But if you read the newspapers, you knew that everything wasn't okay in Gaza between Palestinians and each other and with Israelis. But I didn't scream into the phone and prohibit her from going. Instead, I asked her three questions. You see, on each one of Elisa's trips to Israel, I made sure that when she traveled outside of Jerusalem, she took public transportation. I didn't want her hitchhiking along the road. I didn't want her traveling by herself, and I wanted her going to a recognized destination because I didn't want her to tell me she's hiking in the desert and camping out under the stars. So I said, "Elisa, uh, how are you getting to Gush Katif?" And she told me that she was up at six o'clock in the morning, with a little bit of a stuck in her voice, to catch a bus to Ashkelon and from there into Gush Katif. I said, who are you traveling with? She was going with one of her roommates and another American girl. I said, what's so special about Gush Katif? And she explained to me that the hotel accommodated the religious, had a mechitza on the beach, and she wanted to get a suntan before Pesach. So rather than prohibiting her from going, she was following my rules. I said, have a good trip. Call us when you get back to town on Wednesday. And I hung up the phone. My wife turned to me and she said, you forgot to get the name of the hotel. What if something happens? And while I stand in front of you here today, I don't know why I said that. And um, the next morning, I was late for shul. I jumped into a car on the driveway. It was hers and I was backing it up. And I turned on the radio and I heard of a bus bombing in the Gaza Strip. Now, I'm not gonna tell you that I heard the sound of the explosion I'm not going to tell you that I heard the sound of shattering glass and metal when it ripped off the frame of a bus. I'm not going to tell you I heard any cries of pain. But I knew at that split second that Elisa was involved and that only God could watch out for her now. Rather than alarm my wife in the house with the other kids, I continued to the synagogue and were in the middle of prayers when 15 minutes later the phone rang. I knew it was for me. I picked it up. It was my wife calling to tell me she had just heard from the mother of one of Elisa's traveling companions. The girl's bus had been bombed. Her friends were back in Jerusalem, but they didn't know where Elisa was. They were separated from her at the scene. I took off my towels to film, just dumped them on a chair, and I drove home. My wife says, what do we do? Now, I have to be careful when I tell this next part because I use the word phone book. And if I talk to teenagers, the face goes blank. But I got the phone book out of the drawer, And in the section of United States government agencies and and other governments, there's a phone number for the Israeli consulate in Manhattan. So I dialed the number. The line was busy. I figured that's a good sign because it's Sunday in America, but, you know, Sunday is a Monday workday in Israel. I tried again and again. There was no, no signal going through. I went back to the phone book and I found the number for the United States State Department in Washington, D.C., And I dialed that number, and much to my pleasant surprise, the phone was picked up on the first ring, and I learned then that the State Department is open seven days a week, 365 days a year. And I told the operator why I was calling, and he said, one second, please. And he switched me to another person who started asking me for Lisa's passport number, which we had, where she was going, where she was staying, who she was traveling with. And he said, we'll find your daughter. Just then, as I hung up from the State Department, two of the men from the synagogue came into the house. And I told them what had happened. Now, American Jews are very, very proud of their Israeli connections. So when I explained the story, one fellow said, look, I just worked on a defense contract. I'm calling somebody in Tel Aviv. The other fellow worked on a project involving the Ministry of Health. He said, I'm calling somebody there. And they started dialing away. Before they found Elisa, the State Department called me back. Elisa had been found by the American Embassy in Tel Aviv. She was in a hospital I had never heard of before called Siroka Medical Center, but it's in a city we've heard of before many times, Beersheba. Beersheba sits at the end of the desert, the Negev Desert, and Soroka Medical Center, you would call it a trauma center, I suppose, and Elise was brought there by helicopter. I spoke to two doctors that morning. First one, English wasn't that good, but he said, you should come right away. I said, could I speak to somebody else whose English is a little bit better? And two minutes later, the phone rang back again. It was another doctor. His English was South African. But he explained to me that Elisa had been brought in from the terror attack. They had operated on her, and she was now in the intensive care unit. And I said to him, can you tell me where she was injured? And he said, the head. I said, what's her prognosis? He says, we suggest you come right away. Same thing the other doctor had told me. So I might be a lawyer, but I'm not that stupid. I got on a plane that afternoon, and I flew to, New- to Tel Aviv with a neighbor. And when I arrived that morning, I had spent the previous ten and a half hours on the plane looking at that TV screen in front of you. You know, it tells you the temperature outside in case you want to walk on the wing at 56 degrees below zero, and I watched 10 hours, 9 hours, 8 hours, 7 hours, 6 hours. By so the time I landed in Tel Aviv, I was either in a state of shock or I was exhausted, but Everything seemed to be functioning as they put me into a van heading to Beersheba. Now, if you've never been to Beersheba, I will tell you it is literally in the edge of the desert. And as I'm driving on this road, you can feel the heat coming in already. It's April, but it must have been 90 degrees outside at 8 o'clock in the morning. And I look out the window and I see camels alongside the road. Only place I'd ever seen live camels before was at the Ringling Brothers Circus or in the Bronx Zoo. And then we passed by a lady, an Arab woman, driving a donkey cart. A donkey cart in 1995. And what was really interesting, it had car tires on the cart. They took me to Soroka, and it's a modern-looking hospital. And they brought me through a crowd of people who were standing in the waiting room. And they took me into the intensive care unit. Elisa was in a bed in a corner. She had a bandage on the back of her head over here and a small ventilator tube in her mouth. Now, I grew up in the 1950s and 1960s. and I remember all the great medical shows. There was Dr. Kildare. There was Medical Center. But maybe the most dramatically serious medical show was Ben Casey. And what was Ben Casey? Anybody remember? He was a neurosurgeon. And he never smiled. He had a girlfriend, the anesthesiologist. He had Dr. Zorba, Sam Jaffe, to make light of certain things and teach him moral lessons. But Ben Casey was very serious. And at least once a month, you knew he had operated on a girl who was now in a bed with her head wrapped with bandages. The father sat down next to her and started talking to her, and the girl's eyes opened up, or she started mumbling something, or she sat up, and you knew by the end of the show, she was walking out of there on her own steam. When I sat by Elisa's bedside, I picked up her hand, and I squeezed it, and I whispered in her ear, Elisa, everything will be okay, Daddy's here. But she didn't whisper anything back to me. She didn't mumble. She didn't open her eyes. She didn't squeeze my hand back. When I let go of it, it just fell limp to the side of the bed. Doctors took me into a side room. And they explained that a piece of shrapnel had lacerated her brain. And she was not breathing on her own. And she was, therefore, dead. I said, why didn't you tell me this yesterday? Well, they explained that the medication that they give in these types of surgeries has a side effect of suppressing respiration. You cannot breathe when you have this medication in your system. So they didn't know that she wasn't going to breathe on her own. They tried. But now the medication had worn off. She was dead. They gave me a glass of warm orange soda. And they let a couple of minutes click by on the clock. And the head of the hospital looked at me from across this small room and said, we have a question for you. For the second time in two days, no one had to tell me anything I knew. I said, you want her organs, don't you? He says, yes. He says, religious Jews do not donate organs out of a misconception of the halacha, the Jewish law. And touching his own chest, he says, and we, we secular Jews, we just don't do it. Will you help? If you believe what the Mishnah says, that he who saves one life in Israel is as if he saved the entire world, how do you say no to saving six worlds. But I thought of other things that morning also. You know, every time Elisa came back from Israel, she didn't come back just a better Jew. She was on her sixth trip, right? She didn't come back just a better Jew, she came back a better person on each and every trip. And I think that was reflective of the people that she came across on her vacations. You know, she had this great ability, she'd call up a friend and say, look, I'm gonna be in Israel next week. Anybody I can call to invite myself to Shabbos lunch, And everyone would say, yeah, call this person, call that person. And she would dial them, and she'd say, hi, my name is Elisa Flato. So-and-so gave me your name and phone number. Can I come for Shabbos lunch? And you know what the answer always is, don't you? You see where I'm going with this. The answer is always yes. And how many friends do you want to bring, and do we have to pick you up or drop you off or get you here or anything like that? I thought also about the other victims on the bus that morning. I thought also about the taxi drivers who would wish her a Shabbat Shalom as she got out of a taxi on a Friday afternoon, or the bus drivers who'd wish you a Chag Sameach as you got off the bus. I thought about the people who came in '47 and '48 into the midst of a war, and they didn't have weapons, and they went out to fight, and where they died, they were just buried in mass graves. I thought also about the yeshiva bachurim, the students who were still studying texts that are 4,000 years old and I thought really it was time for payback by the Flato family so we got rabbinical permission we made the donation and we upset the entire apple cart in Israel because here was a a religious Jew from New York doing something that we don't do for ourselves tried to get back to normal life one morning I went to pull the covers over my head that's what you do when you lose a child We wonder why God's face is hidden from us. As I did that that morning, I realized something. She wasn't the only victim on the bus that morning, and she's not been the only victim of Arab terror or war since Israel's founding. And each one of those young victims had a parent also. And that parent got up from shiva, went to work, built a house, raised a family, taught their kids, and still built the country. So how am I going to hide under a cover when so many other people have given us a path to proceed on. You see, it's been a hallmark of our people that whenever we're knocked down, we we get up, we dust ourselves off, we keep on going. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklowitz.
0: I hope you've been enjoying and learning something new from this podcast. If you have a moment, please consider making a contribution at
1: www.valleybaitmidraj.org. Thank you so much, and now back to the learning. About 10 months after Elisa was murdered, there was another bus bombing, this one in Jerusalem, the number 18 bus. It was February 1996. And I was in Harrisburg to give a speech for a federation. And I'm watching the news coverage, which was now several hours old, and the reporter was standing on a street, I think it was Jaffa Road, and I noticed behind buses going back and forth. I said, that's resiliency. That's what you do. You start moving forward. In April 1996, I was invited to the White House to witness President Clinton signing a bill called the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996 that would give Americans the ability to sue countries that are state sponsors of terrorism that murder Americans overseas. Now, frankly, I didn't go to the bill signing. I'd rather go to my kid's yeshiva open house, and that's what I did. But a month or so later, I began to think about suing I ran, because they were named as the space sponsor of Islamic Jihad, which murdered Alisa. So I met with a lawyer, and we decided to pursue this interest, pursue this case. And Steve Perlis, my attorney, calls me up one day. He says, you know, I I just started drafting the complaint. And the law doesn't say anything. It doesn't say what kind of damages you can collect, where you bring the lawsuit, how you get service on the foreign country. We got to change the law. So the summer of 1996, at least one day a week, I went down to Washington, D.C. to lobby for changes to this anti-terrorism act. Now, I will tell you, the one place you don't want to be in the summer is Washington, D.C. You get off the train at 8.30 in the morning, and as soon as you walk onto the platform, the water hits you in the face. That's how humid it is. And by the time you leave at the end of the day, you're soaked. But we persevered. We buttonholed congressmen, we buttonholed senators, we had some very good meetings, we had some very poor meetings. But at the end of the day, in October, we got the law changed. We were able to file suit against Iran. Now, Iran did not appear in our lawsuit. Um, we got uh, what we call a, a proof hearing for two days. We presented evidence as to Iran's involvement. We had pathologists, we had financial people, we had um, uh, sociologists. Uh, we had somebody come in and, and unseal records of the banking transactions, explain them to the judge. Uh, those records are still under seal for some reason. And 10 days later, the judge gave us a judgment of almost $250 million. Or as Frank Lautenberg, the late senator from New Jersey, said to me that morning, he said, do you realize you just recovered a judgment of a quarter billion dollars? I said, well, that sounds like a lot more than $250 million. But yeah, I guess, I guess that's what we did. But that's where the fun began. Because like any good lawyers, my lawyers identified Iranian assets and they wanted to seize them in satisfaction of our judgment. And that's when everything fell in on our heads. Uh, Tom Fay, my attorney, was at the US District Court. He got the writ, he brought it to the US Marshal's office, and they blanched. They started calling supervisor. supervisor called his supervisor, supervisor called his supervisor, and Department of Justice said, you cannot enforce the writ. And that began, the next dance that we had in our case. You find that your own country is literally fighting against you in the courtroom. I was at a hearing one day when we were sat at one table and myself, Steve Perlis, Tom Fay, the three of us, and the other table there must have been eight lawyers with eight behind them. And Tom Fay got up and he said, Your Honor, let's enter appearances. My name is Thomas Fay, Stephen Perlis for the plaintiff. Uh, who are these gentlemen? And they said, we're here on behalf of the Department of Justice. And Tom Fay has this accent. He says, well, Your Honor, I would submit that they're here on behalf of the Iranians. And they went ballistic. It was a lot of fun watching that. Because they believed that Iranian assets that Flato was trying to grab were sacrosanct. And they pointed out over and over and over that if they allowed Iranian assets to be seized, then American assets would be seized by the Iranians, and as I said to one attorney one day, but isn't that how this whole break with the United States came about in 1979 in the first place? What's left for them to seize? But the fact of the matter is you then fight the Clinton administration and the Congress again, you fight in the courtroom, you fight in the media, and you still, you don't complain. You take the challenges that they throw down at you and you, you come over it one at a time, one at a time. And in our case, we had a very fortuitous event. Hillary Clinton was still the first lady and she was in the West Bank near Ramallah and she was at a program being hosted by Sua Arafat, the wife of that mom Yasser Arafat. And Suha Arafat is speaking away in Arabic and if you've ever seen Hillary at a, at a speech, she's got this beatific look on her face looking up at the speaker. I've seen her do it several times. And when Sua finishes, she gets up and she hugs Hillary, and Hillary hugs her, and they, they give the kiss on the kiss on the cheeks. And I like to think that when Hillary got out to the car, one of her aides went up there and hit her in the back of the head. Do you realize what she said? She said that the Israelis, the Jews, are poisoning our wells. They're giving our kids AIDS, leukemia, sickle cell anemia. They're giving every disease named under the sun. And you sat there smiling. So Hillary created what we would say was a faux pas. But it was going to cost her because what was Hillary's dream? Senator from New York. So the Jewish community in New York was up in arms. And Joe Lieberman, who actually gave me a a blurb at the back of my book, was a very good friend of Hillary's. And he said, look, you have to make amends to the Jewish community. I would suggest that you focus on the Orthodox Jews in Manhattan because they're the only ones who really get any coverage. So he arranged the meeting at the headquarters of the Orthodox Union, an umbrella organization. I was invited to come and ask Hillary Clinton a question. And I would tell you she gave a good opening remarks, talking about this, talking about that, then it was time for questions. And I stood up and I said, Mrs. Clinton, are you in support of the administration's efforts that are blocking terror victims from collecting from Iranian assets? And she looked at me and she said, no, I am not in support of that policy. You could have heard the pin hit the floor within two weeks or three weeks after that, we get a phone call from the administration saying that a negotiating committee was being established headed by Jacob Lew. Now Jacob Lew was Treasury, the Secretary of the Treasury under the Obama administration, but during the Clinton administration, he was Director of Office of Management and Budget, also Chief of Staff to Hillary Clinton at one time, so they were close. And then the dance started. Now any lawyers in the group will tell you that a good settlement is one where neither side is completely happy. And that's what we had. We had a settlement that we accepted. We weren't thrilled with it. Neither was the federal government, but settlement was better than no settlement. And at the end of the day, we collected about $24 million on our $250 million, quarter billion dollar judgment. We weren't the only ones who collected. There were other families involved, including um, uh, Cubans, with brothers of the rescue in Florida. And we started to move forward again. Now, you can take that beating from the government and you can just absorb it, or you could try to fight back, which is what we did. But Rabbi Jonathan Sachs used to be the chief rabbi of England, Great Britain. he, He wrote this a couple of months ago. He says that what makes us homo sapiens is our ability to look forward or backward. We can ask, why did this happen? That means we're looking back for the cause. Or we can ask, what then shall I do? That means we're accepting of the facts that we can't change, but we can change things that might happen in the future, and if we do that he calls us choosing moral agents, deciding which path to take from here to where I want eventually to be. Now the fact of the matter is I learned everything about Judaism from my kids, and one of the things that they taught us is that we've never had an easy life, starting with Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, down down to the present day, and look soon we'll be celebrating Pesach, right? And you see, Moses' name is not, Moshe's name is not mentioned at all in the Haggadah. Uh, God is not mentioned in the Miguel and Esther. We're going to be reading that in a couple of weeks. It's just there. We're surrounded by our traditions, we're surrounded by our, our history, our culture, and we try to take it into our daily lives. Even today, look, my friends, we're facing relentless evil. Here, even in this country, we have these, these new congresswomen from the Midwest, and um, it, it doesn't bode well for America, in my opinion. We face relentless evil, but we've learned over the years that we have to stand for something, because if we don't stand for ourselves, no one else is going to do that. It's not that we don't believe in Tikkun Olam. We do believe in Tikkun Olam, but we do it because of who we are and what we are and who our forebears were. And we know that if we don't come to our own aid, nobody else will. I began by talking about destiny, about the Let me finish up with another story. Father's Day 1980, Elisa was finishing up kindergarten. Uh, I was in the house taking a nap, because it was Father's Day. And Gail came running in to tell me that Elisa was in a bicycle accident if I have to come down. And I, I went outside and um, I could look at her foot and I could see that it was broken because it was all bloody and not bloody on the inside, but bloody you know in the skin. And um, she couldn't walk. So I put her in the back of the trusty old Buick, and we were driving to St. Barnabas Medical Center in Livingston, and I came to a traffic light, and she's in the back seat moaning and groaning. And I angled the mirror. I said, what's the matter? And she said to me, Daddy, why do these things always happen to me? Not that she was a klutz. When she was two, my wife let her fall off a fence. When she was four, a girl let her go over a fence. I think she pushed her. And she had the scars on her forehead to show it. So I said, "Alisa." I said, don't worry about it, it was an accident. Uh, Things happen that we don't understand, you were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Today when I sit on an airplane for five hours, sometimes I hear Elisa's voice in the back of my head saying to me, Daddy, why did this happen to me? And you know, my friends, I start my reply the same way. I say, Elisa, we don't understand why things happen. We don't understand all the whys and the decisions that we made—sending you to yeshiva, sending you to Israel six times, giving you the education that you wanted to do, that you that you wanted to have. We don't understand why you missed one bus, and the bus that you met, that you took was attacked. But this time, there are things that I understand, because you were in the land you loved, among the people you loved, studying the Torah you loved. This time, you were in the right place my wish and my hope that I find my right place, and all of us can find our right places. So, Thank you very much for listening to me. It's a father's story. I'll be glad to take any questions you might have of any nature. Thank you. Come on, someone has to ask a question. I usually arrange for a shill to start. Yes, there's the shill in the back. I'll
0: start you off. Um, With all that's gone on in the law in the last couple of years, Taylor Force Act, and forces that were against the Taylor Force Act, and more recently, in the last couple months, the ACAD Act, which would allow Americans to sue any government that received American funds and paid for terrorism, and then the Israeli government asking to exclude the PLO from that, which is who it was really written for, because they're still using the PLO to control the other terrorist groups. It's got to just turn your guts, it turns my mind.
1: Well, well, you you actually answered your own question, because you're right. America and Israel are very afraid of a collapse of the Palestinian Authority. At the same time, the Trump administration has been clear that, look, we're reducing your aid. Um, You can decide whether you want your remaining funds to go to hospitals, which was their big complaint. They, They actually told Jason Greenblatt. Uh, that we don't have enough money to fund our hospitals. And Greenblatt went right back at them and said, because uh, he told me this to my face, he said, well, make a choice. Either you pay, a, you pay money to terrorists sitting in prison or you give the money to, to the hospitals. So in that regard, um, the, the Trump administration is putting some hard choices before the PA. At the same time, they can't afford to have the PA totally collapse because we know... The Hamas is going to take over the West Bank. They won the election, what, 15 years ago now? What's he? It, Abbas is in the, the, fourth, the 14th year of a four year term, right? So it's like 14, 15 years ago. We know the Hamas won the election. And we can't afford to have Hamas in the West Bank. So the Israelis seem to be acting against their own self preservation, but in reality, they're, they're not. Now, my son lives in Jerusalem. Um, when he was doing his, um, his, his army service, um, the phrase was that Palestinians rule the Palestinians during the day, Israel goes in at night, because that's when they do all their arrests, is, is at nighttime. Um, and um, those arrests happen to a great extent because of, the, because of the secret police that the Palestinians have. So Israel's walking on that very fine line. The one sad part that I, that I learned about a lot of American legislation is that it is window dressing. Uh Taylor force act as it was finally... Um, adopted was not the same Taylor Force Act that was introduced. And one of the reasons for that, um, there are two people running for president already, Cory Booker and uh, Kristen uh, Gillibrand from New York. They worked very hard to weaken uh, the effect of the Taylor Force Act. So rather than having an absolute black, cu- black line cutoff, it's very fuzzy very fuzzy. So yes, it's, it's very frustrating. Um, it's, worse for the, it's worse for the families that have actually obtained judgments against the PLO and the Palestinian Authority over the last several years, because you win a trial. You win a trial. There's No doubt about it, you can win a trial. Then when it goes up on appeal, the United States files a statement of interest, or they, they file some sort of document with the court, and then the appeals court backs off quite a bit, usually overturns any lower court um, verdict. So suing Palestinians, suing uh, banks, it's not a walk in the park, even though we have the statutes to do it. Uh, the, uh, the original Anti-Terrorism Act has now actually been gutted as far as the, the type of action that I brought. So people are re- resorting now to going after the banks that were in the middle of all that. Interestingly, the, um, the biggest case of them all uh, was the PNP Parabat case that was... Um, uh, finalized about three years ago. Uh, what we had done in the late 1990s is we identified Iranian banks here in the United States. Now when I say banks, they're not taking deposits or anything like that. They're acting as transfer agents for money going to Iran. And what was happening is this Bank Paraba was basically laundering money for Iran, and rather than have the wire transfer forms say Bank Meli or Bank Sadarat, um, they changed the names on the wire forms. Uh, they got caught. So the federal government, using information I had developed many years earlier, uh, fined this bank $9 billion. A lot of that money is being used in a terror victims fund. But at the same time, no criminal prosecution, just a civil penalty. The bank may have fired two or three guys who engineered this whole scheme, uh, but they weren't barred from the banking or financial business or anything like that. And to Bank Paraba, it was eh, business as usual a week later. And they're still in business uh, in California New York. Um, So there there are many twists and turns, none of them are are clean cut, uh, and it's an ongoing battle. And and the battle today, uh, you know, the Trump administration has reintroduced sanctions uh, against Iran. And our buddies, the Europeans, are working around them. They're trying to find ways to work work through them. But I have to give credit where credit is due. The Treasury Department people who deal with sanctions are very smart people, very smart people. Um, what the, 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 the tools that they have at their disposal to track money, to track sales of material and merchandise and things like that are really incredible. So I expect to see more of that uh, coming back against uh, the European Union. Organ donation? Can you do it? Can you not do it? Yes, yeah. that was one of my questions. What's the question? Yes, six or, six organs. And
0: so I know that Judaism will basically do anything to save life. Um, Rabbi Shmuel is a wonderful example of that. Um, but what, can you review that mm-hmm. as the secular?
1: Mm-hmm. Let, let's go back to the statement you just made, that we do anything to save life. That actually comes from a, a, a part of the Talmud that talks about a building that has collapsed And you know there's a homeowner in that building. Can you get him out on Shabbos? So the Gemara says you remove the boards one by one until you get to his face. And if he's still breathing, you're obligated to keep on digging him out from the house. If he's not breathing, you have to stop. So that then becomes, breathing then becomes the death. There's no breathing, you're dead. Other people hold that the, the heart has to stop beating. The problem with that is that uh, the heart can beat long after the brain has stopped functioning because it's electrical. And the longer you wait to uh, recover organs, th- the worse the organs are. So that's where the fight is today um, amongst the orthodox, whether you have to wait for the heart to stop breathing or whether you follow what we call brainstem death. Which so the
0: orthodox do not believe in organs?
1: Yes, they do. Yes, they do. But, but... Um, even even the Haredi sects do. The ultra-Orthodox do also. The question is, when is the person dead? If you wait for the heart to stop, just about the only organs you can harvest and you can recover then are the kidneys. But in Elisa's case, her heart was still beating, but she was dead. So they removed her lungs, they removed her kidneys, uh, pancreas, uh, unfortunately, and her heart. Unfortunately, um, three of the people were so sick that they barely made it out of the, the operating room and in the intensive care unit, and they passed away. Other three, her heart, kidney, and, and lung, that's a terrible way to say it, right? Heart, kidney, lung, uh, was successfully transplanted. Uh, we met those recipients in September in 1995. And um, I was very nervous about it um, because I, I was afraid I'd have some sort of proprietary feeling that, you know, you owe me something or something like that. And the only thing I could think of saying to them when they left through the translator was, Please don't step off a curb in front of a bus. Now, we knew that Elisa's heart was working because about a year later, I get a letter from this fellow in Kafar Saba, who I'd already met met in person. I'd spoken to him on the phone. And he writes me a letter, says he's still going for treatment. God bless you. I have a new lease on life. Um, I I go every week to the hospital. But I'm very concerned about picking up an infection because I take a public bus to get to the hospital. Can you see your way clear to buy me a car? So I knew at that split second that Elisa's heart was well and alive in Israel. Um, I met her kidney recipient. Um, he, um, who, the anti-rejection drugs almost killed him. And the woman who got Elise's lawn was actually, was actually now mobile for the first time in two or three years without having to have an air tank um, with her. So it was a, um, um, it, it was a very positive lesson. Um, that fall, uh, Adina Berkowitz wrote an article for Moment magazine uh, called uh, Jews and Organ Donation, um, All Take and No Give. Yeah. And that's been, that's been my complaint over the years, is that the Jewish community um, doesn't really donate enough. But that's slowly and steadily changing. What's really incredible today are the number of, of live donations, especially kidneys and liver lobes, and uh, to me, that's incredible because when you give up a kidney, yep, you can, you can live a normal lifestyle, but we don't know. You know, this is still brand new. We don't know how long you can live with one kidney, and, and your blood pressure has to be regulated, and you have to be monitored for, you know, for, for other aspects of your health. So it's a whole new field where people are doing this to strangers. I can tell you that answer. What? My
0: grandmother gave uh, my mother a uh, kidney in 85.
1: In 85, okay. The
0: doctor told So my mother had a
1: child, and my grandmother donated the kidney. Okay, so even then, even then, yes, ma'am.
0: How was your wife doing? Ah, talk about her being involved in. You you obviously took on the fight, and that probably sort of was
1: cathartic for you. How how did she handle it? Um, Very interestingly, when. I submitted the manuscript to Gil Troy, who um, wrote a a beautiful book review um, a couple of months ago and also a blurb on the back of the book. He wrote me a very nice email. He said, I notice that you don't talk about your wife a lot in the book. And I understand why, because her grief is different from yours. He said, you should address it. So I address it in the preface. That's the introduction. That's where I address it. So what we've learned is that, Every family reacts differently. Remember Nocturne Waxman? Waxman, right? 1993, 1994, was killed by Hamas, he was a soldier. And his mother came to this country and was campaigning up and down the East Coast, uh, talking about terrorism and her son and things like that. The funny thing is when you went to Israel, her husband was a spokesperson. She was in the background. So um, every family um, reacts differently. Um, my wife um, just withdrew. Uh, she still will not give an interview. Uh, she will sit for a photo, but she will not answer any questions. And if anybody's too aggressive, she'll just walk, walk away from them. Um, for many years, if I just said the word Elisa to her, she would well, her tears would well up. They don't, they don't do that anymore. Now when I mention my name, that's when her eyes well up because she wants to, you know, strangle me. Laugh. So yes, she didn't do well for many years. Um, I think she's beyond that now, uh, especially that uh, we have 16 grandchildren, four named after Elisa. Um, and um, she gets involved in her mahjong three days a week. You know, this is, this is what it is. My kids, that's interesting. Um, no one usually asks about that. I'll tell you a true story. Um, my daughter Francine, her oldest Michal, the first, the first granddaughter that we had, who's named after Elisa also, um, a couple of years ago, Michal was really giving it to her mother. Bang, 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 right? And Francine says something very interesting to me. She says, I didn't do that at that age because of what happened to Elisa. So I don't know how to react because I didn't have to be disciplined. So that's, that's been the story, actually. Um, they had a different, they had different teenage years. And... Um, look, I say my son Eitan moved to Israel because New Jersey wasn't big enough for both of us. Uh, There wasn't enough air uh, for us to breathe. And someone else explained it in a a slightly different way that um, he most probably felt he was being outshone by his sisters who were outgoing and out out there like that. He wasn't a good student. And uh, he had to go find his own his own path. And, and even the girls still scratch their heads. How do you make it to Israel before we did? You know, they're, they're still trying to figure that out. But now he's productive. He's got two little girls, lives in Jerusalem. I call him the settler because he lives in Amon HaNatsiv. Um, if you remember the green line, um, it came out from the, from the old city and then it, like, it, it opened up and then got narrow again. That valley, that, that no man's land is where his community is. Um, so um, he's working for a property management company, two little girls. He's got a car now. They drive, they go, they own a house. Um, the girls are all uh, well-married. Um, they go to three different schools. They all have three different ways of, 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 of learning and observance and things like that. And the kids are all in yeshiva. They don't know of anything else. Me, for me, my kids, was a learning experience. We thought Pizza Hut was okay because it was just cheese. you know. My grandkids, whoosh, you know, wouldn't happen, wouldn't happen. Thank you. That's a very, thank you for that question.
0: Everybody else lives in the States and wants to lives over there. What was that? Everybody else
1: lives here in the States. Yes, the, the, the three girls are in Bergen County within a mile, a mile radius of each other. And when we lived in West Orange, we were 18 miles. So the call would go like this. Ma, I can't get a babysitter for tonight. And the answer is, go call your sister. Easier. Go call your sister. And they do. They, they get back, you know, they just, they just cover for each other. They carpool, they do what they, they have to do. And it's a um, uh, look, when you, when you have kids, you, you know, they may be 40 years old now, but when they're with you, you still think of them as 15 years old, right? When I first started speaking back in the 90s, I used to bring home shower caps from the hotels that I was at. I still give them to Francine. I mean, 25 years later, I'm still giving her shower caps when I, when I come from, you know, from a trip. Uh, the Fairfield Inn does not have shower caps. Um, but um, I have them on my dresser drawer. And whenever I get a couple, I put them in a bag. I give them to her. She says, you can never have enough shower caps. These are the things. Yes, ma'am? How did it
0: strange after
1: the- Like royalty. Like royalty. Uh, it was actually um, very interesting. Maybe weird is the right word. Um, we were getting very close to the people to consulate in New York City, and um, whenever they had a delegation of Knesset members coming to the New York area, they would bring them to my house on a Sunday. So I have pictures of me with people who are no longer in the Knesset or anything like that, but we were like celebrity status, I guess is the right word, and one of them once remarked to us, um, such a big lawn and you don't have any sheep, you know, um, always have treated me nicely. As a matter, I'll tell you a true story. Uh, We get a small pension each month from the Israeli government, and payment stopped. So I I call the consulate in Manhattan, and uh, they have an office that handles this. It's part of the military for some reason, and um, we'll look into it. Next day, I'm in my office. I get a phone call. This is Soshi from the Ministry of Health. Why didn't you call me first about your missing payment? I said, "Uh, because I didn't know you existed. You know, and then it was, everything was fine. But, you know, Israelis, you know, it was just, it's just been um, an incredible experience. Don't think they'll go out of their way to give me information that I need. Don't think that. But as far as recognizing that we're bereaved parents and, and, and things like that, it, it's been, it's been um, comforting, comforting. Thank you for coming.